Welcome back to Centering the Margins, the companion podcast to the book, How to Teach Contentious Issues in the Classroom by Francisco Ramos, available for $4.99 on Apple Books. As always, I'm Michael Betts Second, and I'm joined today by the author himself, Cisco Ramos, and we are always glad you decided to come back. If you're finding us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to check out our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast service you like. This week, we talk about engaging abilities. Michael, I am so ready for this week. Let's make the invisible visible. So that's the part of me again where, you know, I I know you and I talk offline. I know we talk on this podcast about what are there some of the underlying things that you have in common um, with those, even if you don't agree with them, where, where where is it that you can get to the same framework so that something productive can can come out of that dialogue or that interaction? Right. And I've always been a big believer of, you know, it's not the superficial, it's not the things that you can see. It really is. How do I get to a place of talking about values? How do I get to a place about talking about beliefs? Because every single time, um, and I'm not that old. I'm in my, I'm in my mid thirties. Um, I've had that conversation with somebody where we start with something that, you know, maybe we see on, I don't know. I'm just going to say CNN because that's the the network that comes to mind right now. And every time we dig a little deeper, we dig a little deeper, we dig a little deeper. We end up at this place of like our beliefs, our values, what's important. And the vast majority of time, we're really trying to get at the same thing, but from very, very, very different angles. um, Right. About what's fair, what's equal, what's equitable, what's right, what's wrong. Um, what do they want for their kids? What do they want for themselves? What do they want to do with the life that they have? Right. So that's the stuff where, um, I see just around me where there's this endless reservoir of untapped possibility and exploration. If we can get past the superficial. Yep. Yep. And I think that in some regards relative to that, I, I, I mean, I see a distinctive, um, what do you call it? I see a distinctive uh, calling for us to, I guess I feel like I I need to add a little context to this. So I was recently in a conversation um, with a woman named um, uh, Frances Negron, and she made this brilliant statement talking about the difference between identity and perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. And how just because an idea identity is something that you possess doesn't necessarily mean you possess the perspective behind it. Mm. Uh, and so one is far more telling of how you would, you know, literally go about processing whatever's in front of you. Yeah. Um, then if, uh, 
than if you were to like we started joking like oh so you're saying that you know if candace owens came in the room and said hey i'm a black person you should trust should we trust her <laughs> and the answer is overwhelmingly no mm. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah and and but oh, go ahead i'm sorry go ahead well, no, no, I'm saying so with that in mind, like if you're constantly taking those things into consideration, perspective is going to be the driver all the time, mm. all the time. And, you know, the thing I was, um, you know, for what it's worth, I, I used to have these uh, conversations with friends and honestly, identity as an organizing feature for something is a terrible idea. Exactly. It is exactly. A, it is a terrible idea. Like it's one of these things, and I don't. I don't know. I mean, let me take a back. I know where it comes from, and at the same time, as you mentioned, it's really dangerous to assume solidarity. It is really, really, really dangerous um, mm-hmm. for all kinds of different reasons. So it's sort of like I. I don't know. It, it's something I have seen in very different contexts. Um, where people assume something and then they're deeply disappointed or disenchanted with what just happened, right? Right, right. We see this in a, and I don't want to get into specific examples, but that's the general point. Um, identity is a terrible way um, in, in a lot of regards to serve as an organizing feature and principle for, for something bigger. Values, beliefs, perspective, um, culture is is uh, can inform a right. conversation. Identity can inform a conversation. There's no question. But a central organizing something, um, I, I I I I don't know if I'd go that far. Yeah. Right. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. Um. Anyway, dude, we're we are we are doing our best as always to uh to be as on topic while not being on topic as ever <laughs> but but you know what though right like no i mean i think it's exactly on topic and and let me tell you this i i know we always start we start just talking and we see where things end up right so with engaging abilities which is what this specific episode is is centered on and I, and I will say this based on my own experiences, and this is the argument I would make when it comes to um, abilities, it is one of the least understood, often invisible, and yet most important aspect of any democratized learning environment. Exactly. I mean, we, for the, and, and I think where this comes from in a lot of ways is sensibilities, um, as, as the um, notions of what we believe is normal. You know, and for those who are listening to us right now, I start every single chapter in the guidebook with a quote from somewhere. And this is the only chapter in the guidebook where I asked a former student if I could use the words that they said in class because they were so powerful in a particular moment that I will always remember. So to take us back, this must have been in 2019. And we're talking about abilities and out of nowhere, um, the, a very, very quiet student raised their hand and I was like, oh, hey, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, what do you, what do you think? And out of nowhere said, I don't know what it means to be normal, but I do know when people are treating me differently. 
Yeah. And I, I just, I like, it's, it's like those were the words just kind of hung out in the air. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody said anything. And it was just sort of like, huh? You know, where, where you're, you're yeah. just, yeah. you're, you're just, mm-hmm. it, it came from a place of wisdom is, is the only way I can describe it. And that right. I'll, I'll never forget this sense of normal, this sense of abilities, um, is is there and i think our understanding broadly speaking of where this comes within educational context and i think historically um is really quite poor uh to to be honest with you it's really really quite poor so i know in in the class that i teach i always start and it seems overly formal um, because if, if you take my class, I mean, I, I try to have, you know, one or two PowerPoint slides to frame certain conversations. Right. There's going to be some terms. Exactly. This one specifically around abilities, there's got to be um, seven, eight slides. And it feels like a history presentation. Um, well, and- because we don't have a frame of reference. I mean, you know, to your point from earlier, a lot of these other things, Many of us have lived in a world where in some way, shape, or form, we've seen that. It's only probably significantly, and I know we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, but we've significantly seen an uptick of that surrounding mm-hmm. things like mental health conversations. Yeah. And so, and that's, you know, celebrities who are willingly coming forward and talking about struggles that they're dealing with. And so that is starting to like normalize and standardize the idea that we would even have a conversation like this publicly. So you have to do the historical stuff. <laughs> you, well, yeah. And, and, you know, and I think it's surprising to people that really it starts in 1965 with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. There are a lot of disability rights activists who deserve a lot of credit um, yeah. in this. I mean, truly, like. You know, I know uh, we always, um, you and I, we always talk about, you know, people, people vote with their feet. Yes. Um, and there's nothing yes. more political than using your feet. Um, yes. So there's a lot of really hard work that, and and I will say a lot of underappreciated work and often a lot of invisible work that took place. Yep. Um to get yep. to the point where you could have something like an American Disabilities Act. And so, you know, I start with 65, I explain a little bit about what's going on in the 70s. And I think it surprises people that, you know, within education, this the, the phrase reasonable accommodation has only been in existence since 1990, mm-hmm. uh, 31 years. That's truly it. Right. Um, and so... You know, this entire chat, and you can, I know you can hear it in my voice, um, but that whole entire point around engaging abilities is just to ensure that all students, every single student has an equal access to learn and an equal access to educational opportunities. Right. I mean, right. I know we, we've spoke, we, we spoke about it around um, gender identity and sexual orientation about, you know, I'm... I'm not queer, but I can certainly understand what it's like being told you don't belong simply on the basis of, and then insert, um, you know, an identity marker there. That is exactly how I approach this area because it's, I, and and I will say this and I'll speak for myself and I know I'm, I feel like I'm on a soapbox right now. Um, Go for it. Go for it. (laughs) Yeah. Go, go, go. Um, (laughs) 
you know, um, but again, it becomes this thing. I think for anybody who has been on the other side of how people are treated and how people are poorly treated, that's something you don't forget. And I don't know about you, but you know, I, I am so thankful growing up that the people around me were wise enough to pull me aside and, and said, I know you feel upset right now, channel it into something productive. And if you see somebody being treated the way that you were treated, stand up for them. Exactly. Exactly. So that's where a lot of this comes from. Um, yeah, I just, I just, I have a very small and low tolerance for, for that kind of nonsense. I mean, as you should, and that makes sense. And, and, you know, speaking from personal experience, so, and I'm, I don't mind disclosing these things. I talk about them all the time. You know, I have ADHD. Uh, I also have dyslexia and dysgraphia. Um, and in some ways, you know, as I've become older and started to, to kind of think about a lot of different things, um, you know, I had the, the title and designation as a kid that I had a learning difference. And I'm wondering how much of that was, yeah, these other things I've just talked about, plus poverty, um, mm-hmm. that kind of all come mm-hmm. together to make this mash of, of like, well, that's an insurmountable thing that we're experiencing. Um, and so you need to medicate him. You need to, you know, there were certain things that my, my parents got used to hearing about me, um, that they struggled to deal with because they didn't, they're like, I know what my kid is capable of. I know if, if you give him the reasonable accommodation, not only can he meet the challenge, he'll exceed it. Um, yeah. and so it might take me a second to get something, but when I got it, I got it. You know, it's one mm-hmm. of the things that is constantly a conversation in our house. Uh, like my partner and I, for example, took courses or took classes together, um, in, in college. We had an opportunity to take one class together. Uh, she did far better than I did. I actively mm-hmm. apply the stuff that I learned in it still to this day. Um, hmm. and it's just the way that things kind of grip me. Um, and so, yeah. you know, being in a space where you have been basically looked at and said, well, you know, it's not possible for you to do X. So we'll just expect Y from you. It, it, it is, it is both. I read a tweet the other day, um, from, a, a disability rights activist, uh, and, she was making the statement. She, well, actually I read one earlier today and then one from the other day. I read two. Oh, uh, the first one was, <laughs> um, there's both very germane to this. The first one was, you yeah. know, do you, uh, if you were, how, how, how was it phrased? If you were, you know, walking up to the door and everything was fine, do people rush over to open the door for you to make sure that you can walk inside and whatever? And do they stare at you? If the answer is mm-hmm. no, then why are you doing that to me? That was the first statement. And then the second was, uh, you know, you can't say this is a, a, a black woman. Um, and she goes, you can't say that you believe, you know, we should protect all black women and you believe in the, the voice of black women. When you come on my page, tell me I look funny and make fun yeah. of the fact that I yeah. have a disability. You can't do those things mm. and make mm. those statements. They're in direct opposition. And so yeah. one of the things that I really have come to uh, really value from disability rights activists, a lot of them have always had to see, you know, the Kimberly Crenshaw intersection. Like they, I was just thinking that. Yeah, yeah. keep going. Well, keep going. a lot of them have had to. Be- they've had to beat the the drum for this because they get they they basically get slighted one way or the other, and they're always told, "Well, you can't you can't ask for all of that because it, it wouldn't be fair to your other fill in the whomever." Mm-hmm. 
And it's like, mm-hmm. well, this is the way that the world is oriented for me. So you're trying to say that, you know, every, only one part of me is allowed to be accepted rather than accepting a hundred percent of me. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, you, uh, <laughs> I was literally thinking about intersectionality, having to know it just to survive. Yeah. You know, exactly. and, and literally one of the things I was thinking about in, in preparation for, for this conversation, um, specifically was not, was the word burden, right? Yeah. Initially I was thinking about the word burden of memory. Like if, mm-hmm. if it weren't for black and brown folks, uh, American Indians, if it wasn't for us remembering, yeah. um, would we have a history? Because for the vast majority of our existence in certain contexts, at least my history has been handed down orally. You know what I mean? Exactly. Telling stories, this kind of thing. Because I never saw it in books. I certainly didn't really see it in movies. So my history is very much people sitting around a dinner table and telling me either about back in the day or personalities who used to be alive. um, But those personalities deeply influenced uh, my parents, my aunt, my uncle, whomever. Exactly. Um, And I think it's... um, in certain respects, it's the same kind of thing here. Like it is the burden of having to be an activist. And I do mean having, because some people don't have a choice of being in this fight. They have to do it because there are questions of dignity, questions of respect, questions of, oh man, just being accepted as an equal member of society Mm -hmm. and knowing Mm -hmm. full well that those that, um, interact with them are going to question them exactly that to, that to me there's there's really no choice for a lot of people so yeah that's exactly what i was thinking about in in the lead up to today's conversation because i don't know it just it hit me on a on a very visceral level um yeah that, that's all i got man i could i could go for a while uh, i'll give someone else a soapbox go for it <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, one of the things in, in we always start with this whole designation of definitions of terms prior to a discussion. And I think that if there is any term that has taken some of the most nuanced directions uh, yeah. before it became kind of solidified from yeah. a, a colloquial perspective, I think ableism is one of those things. Because, you know, we've used the, the term like you're an enabler. We've used those kinds mm-hmm. of use those kinds of words for a long time. But the idea of foregrounding ability over disability, I think it takes people a minute to wrap their heads around it. How do you do that in your classes? Oh, I was going to ask you uh, before before I talk about my class, can you break down what ableism is or refers to? OK, uh, well, I mean. I'm just going to read what you wrote because I think it's a really easy definition. I know you're referring to uh, to someone else here, but the the devaluation of disability, uh, the result in societal attitudes that uncritically assert that it is better for a child to walk than roll, speak than sign, uh, read print than read braille, spell independently than use a spell check, and hang out with non-disabled kids as opposed to other disabled kids. It. it it foregrounds what we would consider to, to your, your former student's point, what we have considered as normal. Yeah. 
and you know the the thing that i i have the way that i think about ableism is and again this this may seem like a really far out there idea and it's something that i've just you know you can write you know something down and be like oh i'll come back to that right we right. think about structures and systems as you know we do we have there is a vocabulary to talk about racism mm-hmm. we can talk about racist structures exactly we can talk about gendered structures I don't understand. I mean, I do. Don't get me wrong. I don't understand why it's it sometimes takes so long to talk about ableist structures. Right. Right. Well, that I I, I have not seen those two words together. Um, and now, granted, I I'm not a. I, that's not my field. Right. You know. Exactly. Don't get me wrong. Exactly. I'm, I'm not saying I, it, it's not out there. I'm just. But saying it's not I mainstream. It's not a mainstream no, conversation. No. 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 Certainly right. not. Certainly not. And, and I think that when and I, I, I would I would hope that we could express to our listeners that a lot of times when we say we don't see it is a statement of without doing a ton of research with minimal research. And, and most of that is like, where were the colloquial spaces that you were hanging out? I'm not mm. seeing X term broadcasted in that space. I think at this point, yeah. we know that the words white supremacy and white supremacist yep. or patriarchal or capitalistic, like those are terms that will show up in a lot of broad stroke spaces without really having to necessarily be there, even if they're being used in jest. You know, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. when Monty Python is making jokes about the patriarchy because the woman in the water yeah. comes out in what, like, you know what I mean? Like that's that's when mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's we know that it has it has entered into mainstream space. Whereas something like ableism, and to your point, like we haven't seen it, and I think that it's hard for folks because it is so. I mean, for lack of a better term, we get so upset when we feel implicated in in being complicit with a structure, and you know the idea of ableism in and of itself. You know, for me to foreground the well being of people who can do the thing that I do over people who supposedly, in my mind, can't. And I say supposedly in my mind can't because I don't have an idea of understanding of the great diversity of abilities, even if it mm-hmm. doesn't work the way that I think it should work. So yeah. for me to think that you know there's a specified way by which to do X thing, and that's the best way to, to have the best outcomes, I, I think that it's yeah. it's more devastating to folks to say, like, yeah, I guess I was, I guess I was foregrounding able-bodied people in these ways that's a hard thing for people to wrap their minds around well it's a hard thing and 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 to take it a step further i mean you know i i think the word that is sometimes it can be thrown around recklessly sometimes it is thrown around appropriately is complicity right 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 you know and i think it's really really hard for for most people and again this is Cisco's pop psychology. So this is completely not rooted in a lot of things. But Cisco's pop um, psychology, by the way, is the next podcast that we'll be starting. That would be terrible. (laughs) (laughs) We got, uh, let's see, Cisco's pop psychology, how to start a terrible business, bad business advice. (laughs) It It could just be a sketch comedy show. Anyway, you know. The pop psychology, you know. Um, but your pop psychology yeah, anyway, in this it? situation, dealing with ableism and complicity. Well, yeah, well, well, I think for a lot of people, it's just really hard. You know, it's very easy to analyze 
um, a scenario and and somewhere cognitively keep yourself out of it, right? So you can exactly. analyze something and then it's sort of like, okay, well, I see it sort of like this or it's like that or it's structured this way or it's structured that way. This is how I feel about it. This is what I think of it, et cetera. It is quite another to say, okay, I see what is unfolding in front of me and I see the intention, the motivation of my actions going into it. And I see their consequences and I can see um, the positive, the invisible positives and the invisible negatives and how those in a way that carries on after this moment or this experience has unfolded, how those invisible positives or negatives carry a life of their own in the actual real world. Exactly. 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 Well, and, and, and here's the other thing, like, and this is the, and we, we from a gen, uh, a gene pool standpoint, a gene, a, what is it? Gen, genetic standpoint. Why can I not remember that word? From a genetic, don't worry about it. <laughs> from a genetic standpoint, <laughs> don't worry about it. We we talk about the precarity of the proliferation and survival of certain species when they are so homogenous. Yeah, and so we have to talk about the survival and precarity of survive, like literally survival, when we are not prepared to support and or have a mindset that is geared towards those who are differently abled than we are. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear that one of the, one of the questions that uh, is at the center of a lot of things that I do, a lot of the questions that I ask, a lot of the activities I undertake some literally is one of the reasons why I wrote this guidebook is really simple. And I swear for the next 30 years, it will occupy a center place in a lot of my efforts, right? Is are we reproducing the very conditions that we're working to transform? Mm. And I say, and I say that because it's, it's very, very easy um, to, to go about thinking we're actually better than we are, exactly, or that there aren't some repercussions or reverberations around positive or negative right right, to what we're doing in the present moment and then i would argue and maybe people may disagree with me that you know most folks don't necessarily have a clear sense of um what came before them Mm -hmm. what kind of histories and cultures they inherit right um with a with a clear with a with i hope some kind of sense of at a very basic level like what have we tried in the past what hasn't worked how are things changing to really um just having that kind of dialogue and opening it up so that whatever comes out of our efforts and actions is something i i hope would be um a creative um, and actually address the problem at hand as opposed to what often happens. Well, and, and I think I, we would want to go a step further almost and say that mm. in in not addressing the problem at hand uh, and in not being creative and in limiting ourselves, we we will I mean we're 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 stagnant like, that I think that at the end of the day, you know, 
uh, I can't imagine a world where I, I get, I'm sorry. I keep like starting and stopping. I'm, I'm like, my brain is moving a million miles a minute. Um, I, I think that in some ways we, we, we stall, you know, we talk about developing versus non-developed uh, communities, right. Which is, has its own set of problems, but yeah. So if we want to talk about the, the, one of the things that we always say is that uh, desperation in some regards and just necessity in general is mm-hmm. the advent for what is it? The mother of all invention. Like mm-hmm. we become better because we have to think about things that we haven't thought about previously. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, when we talk about the, I don't know, like I always think of, for example, so I wanted to be a pediatric audiologist for, and I still do that. That has never gone away. Wow. Wow. That is, that's, I cannot say that five times. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's just the fluidity in which that came out. I was like, wow, I can't do that. Cool. I, I, I wanted to be a children's ear doctor. Um, Thank you. And, and, Thank you. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I understand that. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by hearing health um, and how the the brain makes sense of acoustic versus digital information. Um, I'm mm. I'm so like completely fascinated, like drawn in, consumed by this as 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 a construct. And one of the reasons why mm. is um, there's a book by a, a woman named C.C. Bell. Uh, it's called Hero. Um, and uh, H-E-A-R-O dash O. Um, and the brilliance of the book, it's written as a graphic novel for um, like tweens who were, you know, it's a story about CC. I think the author, if I'm not mistaken, is deaf. And it's a story about like coming to be in that space and it's, you know, dealing with it. But there's something beautiful at the root of that conversation Um, so all of you listeners out there, you can't see the room that I'm sitting in right now. I'm a obnoxious superhero junkie, like comic books and things of that nature drive me. Um, and one Mm. of the reasons is because of this idea of being deaf, you have, you end up gaining things and abilities that we have not been able to engage because we have lost an ability. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. so we can talk about like Daredevil, for example, the the auspice of his character is predicated on the inability to see his hearing is like a, mm-hmm. this insanely high level. Um, and so, yeah. you know, as a as a in this book hero, like one of the things that she talks about is being super. And yeah. as a, a ch- children's ear doctor, like I wanted to be able to talk about that super ability. And so part of that is because people figured out how to engage the world in a different manner. So you have these things called cochlear implants that literally we insert effectively a microphone and a computer to help process the, the, what the microphone is listening to. And then we connect that to organic material inside your head. You are cybernetic. And like, isn't that, 
It's crazy to think right? about it, you know? Exactly. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's one of these things like that's got to be science fiction. And you know what? what's wild is as you were talking, so I grew up on comic books. Stan Lee yeah, man. is, how do I say it? Way ahead of his oh, time yeah. in so many oh, ways. Yeah. And then it's sort of like, his his realities like then actual reality caught up to where he was at like in the 1960s yep. insane and like that's that's the i think that if we were to spend more time framing it in that way this whole idea mm. of of ableism is that we are injuring yeah. our ability to be superhuman yeah like the idea of the escalator right we used to have mm -hmm. stairs and like Mitch Hedberg has a joke about this. Is that there's no such thing as a broken <laughs> yeah. escalator. They're just called, it's right. Still they're just called stairs. <laughs> it still works. But, like that's a thing. Like the idea of the escalator, somebody looked at this and said, we need to be able to move folks that either a are, you know, aged up B mm -hmm. uh, have maybe a prosthesis or C are just tired. We need to be able to move them yeah. from one place to the next easily. And so we'll invent something like moving steps so that their lives yep. are simplified. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the word that came to mind, not simplified, simplified, inconvenienced. Right, right, right. That an experience like, um, and if I were to sort of, backtrack a day let's say i go to the mall so you're telling me i deliberately put on shoes i deliberately hop in the car i make the choice to take the car from where i live to the mall uh i get out of the car i walk around for i don't know two hours slowly with a whole granted pre-covid not now don't yes. do it um um and in this experience of chairs everywhere there's a sofa maybe i can sit mm -hmm. down there's a massage there's a, there are actual like little massage booths yep. so you can sit down and someone could work out your calves and um and back in addition to that um we created escalators yep, yep. exactly exactly and and I, hmm. i'm saying on top and th these are very very specific examples that most of us I would imagine most individuals that are listening have experienced in real life. So why don't we have those same conversations happening in classrooms that are, yeah. how do we build this classroom so that you can go to class and have the equivalent of walking around the mall and having an opportunity to be at the massage booth. And then when you're done with that, go up the escalator, like, why are those not things that are going hand in hand in a much more deliberate sense? And why do we feel like this is an othered situation? Um, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, be because it is right. Right. It, it, it really is it, like, and again, I, this chapter, what does it mean to be normal becomes a question right. in my mind. Like truly, what does that right. mean? What does that look like in practice? Because, um, Personally, I think it's just a construct. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Right? Like it, it's just we we call it this. We aim for conformity. We're trying to find something closer to the mean, whatever that looks like. Um, you know, given geography, where we are, to a specific context I, I, I'm in, whether it's a room, a school, or out in the community somewhere. Right. 
Um, but but that that's all that it is. And I think it's I, I'm convinced, and granted, this again for our next podcast around <laughs> Cisco's pop cultural psychology, but it but in certain ways, change happens when inconvenience emerges. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of these different things where I always think about, you know, truly where does change happen? And I used to, um, you know, I, I, when I was, you know, writing my thesis, um, my, my doctoral thesis specifically, and, you know, I'm asking these kinds of questions I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm crunching numbers, I'm interviewing people. I used to bump up against this question of truly where does change actually happen? Because, depending on where you live or what the circumstances are. Um, sometimes it's, uh, happens within institutions, right? right. Sometimes, uh, I think as, uh, Audrey Lord, for example, who used to say the, the tools of the master's house will never tell down the right. master's house. Um, so change, and there's a strong argument for that says it cannot come from within institutions. It's got to come from external resources. Uh, yeah, it's got to come from, the community right. has to come from people. So again, I think it's, um, but I think it's when inconvenience enters the picture, then I think the ingredients for change can actually be stirred a little well, bit. Well, and, and even to that point, though, I think the ingredients for change still have to have inconvenience that cannot be similarly to the point of uh, of saying we can't oscillate around a single identity issue and expect something to rotate mm inconvenience can't be the thing there has to be there has to be other other mo or uh, other motivating factors because inconvenience is Mm -hmm. always able to be relegated based off the position that you possess and so you know i I think one of the big things that we want to also acknowledge inside of that is that if it's inconvenient for me you know say for example uh uh We'll go back to the escalator example, right? So it could be mm-hmm. inconvenient for me to walk up those escalators that aren't the, the the stairs that aren't moving. That is an escalator. It could be uh, devastating for you to do that. If you've just had name mm-hmm. the surgery, name the whatever that would make it hard for you to yeah. climb seven steps, for example, like. Mm-hmm. That could be potentially precarious. You know, if say, for example, there are, there are places in the world, most notably in like rural communities where there is one shopping mall, which is where all of the all of the shopping happens. And sometimes there are yeah. pharmacies. I've literally been to malls that have like Walmart superstores attached to it because that's like where everything happens which was really disconcerting by the way i've never having a, a, a walmart in a mall was it was it threw me off big time <laughs> um, yeah but to that point though it was one of those moments where i realized like that's where the pharmacy was and so if you've yeah. got one little you know spot where you can go get your healthcare worked out and then you've got one little pharmacy and it's at the the mega mall where everything is and i have to overcome whatever inconveniences are so that i can go in there i'm not promised that those inconveniences aren't going to be devastating to me results wise later and and you know that's a really great practical illustration of something i know we've talked about and i would say on my end i know i've struggled to explain um we talk about a classroom can be 
inclusive and exclusive at the same yeah. time. We can try to bring down a wall and we end up raising another one somewhere yeah. else. Those kind of spaces and environments um, are a lifeline. Exactly. Thank goodness they're there. Thank goodness I can go somewhere and get my prescription filled. Um, that if this place didn't exist, I may have to drive, I don't know, 30, 40 miles somewhere else, right? right? The other part of it is, um, as you mentioned, the, okay, so that's great. You can you can drive there, but look at the obstacles you then have to confront. When you get there. Um, once you park your car, you get out of your car, you get out of the parking lot, and then you open the door, that's got to feel like an obstacle, obstacle right. course. Exactly. Exactly. It's got to. Exactly. And we keep talking about, you know, physical ailments. This is not including things that are intellectual ailments or or uh, mental health things. Like all of these things, they oscillate in different directions. I, I have friends who are paralyzed mm-hmm. by the idea of making a phone call to confirm something that they know is already there for them. Like, yeah. That that kind of discussion, yeah. you know, there there has to be a way that we design things to be universally acceptable and accessible for all people. You know, there's no question, and I and I think, again, um, I think part of it is, in a way, that makes sense because I think it's easier for people to grasp grasp things that they mm-hmm. can see that are mm-hmm. tangible. Um. It is very, very difficult. Like once we start talking about invisible, invisible traumas, invisible yep. wounds, um, I, I think that's where a lot of people they get off the um, bus. You know, it's yeah, it, it it's hard. It's right. hard to grasp. You know, or it's harder to grasp. Right. I should say. I mean, going back to my uh, superhero reference, I mean, that's, I think one of the things mm-hmm. that was hard for folks with Chadwick Boseman, you know, his mm-hmm. we watched him be super. We literally watched him be super. And then to find out that he was dealing with an internal ailment that ultimately would be his demise. Yeah. I think for a lot of folks, that's that's overwhelming to to digest because, you know, there was this huge Twitter trend that's consistently managed to stay around, especially given the pandemic. Like you don't know what struggles people are going through. Yeah. 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 You you don't know. And 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 I and I will say this, and it's something I have to remind myself all the time, just to keep myself straight um, and honest right. with myself. Um, don't you know this is, but basically, don't believe necessarily the presentation that someone is giving you exactly who they are exactly. No, because because I, I know we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, like. You know, the first thing I learned in Phil Karspakin's class around social theory is you cannot trust your eyes or the images because your senses will deceive you. Exactly. And if there's any one thing that something like a social media has done, it has ratcheted that up by Mm. a power of like into the thousand. Like, right? Like (laughs) we've gone Mm. up by a power of into the thousand. Like it's so it's so high at this point. And I know for all those theory mm-hmm. folks out there, like, well, that's a reflexive number anyway, but I'm just, I'm getting at the fact <laughs> that like, ultimately it is, it is devastating because what the presentation that's mm-hmm. in front of you is, is a, a, uh, an attempt to cajole people to believe that you're okay. Yeah. That you're normal. 
Yeah. And we're back to that word again. And no one has an idea of how to define that word. No, no. And I mean, the, the thing I, I remember um, vividly whenever I talk to my parents and we're talking about sometimes it's things that are going on in El Paso. Sometimes it's things that are going on in Texas or just sometimes it's macro things in general. Um, you know, I, I remember my mom commenting once that, um, you know, like, oh, you know, people have really, really nice cars. They must be doing well. Mm. Um, and, and it was just an offhanded comment. You know, you're driving around, you see some nice cars, somebody makes a comment, not that big a deal. And I think in my mind, and I remember saying vividly is like, I know they're nice cars. Yep. I also know that like 40 to 50% of the U.S. population can't find a thousand dollars if they needed it. Yep. So exactly. I, I, it's like, I hear you. But odds are that you, you take two out of five, um, three out of six, whatever that number is, um, you know, 40 to 50 percent and people are struggling. Yeah. Like I, I, I see the presentation that's in front of me, but then truly what is real in, right. the, in this environment? This we're presented with normal, but I don't know what normal means. I see a presentation of something and it's hard for me to um, hold that reality of two and five or 50 between 40 and 50% on one hand. And a lot of people driving nice cars. Uh, right. Well, and, and that we literally have terms for that. We have, we have noted that as keeping up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. We have called that ghetto fabulous. Mm-hmm. We have called that like, there's all kinds of terms that designate that uh, sense of needing to keep up with the materialistic consumption of things. So you can keep an image outward societally. So people will respect you or think you know what you're doing or whatever. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I think that many of us would preclude the previous administration was led by somebody who was – it was more important to look right than for it to be right. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that this is – I know we're going down this this little bit of tangent to talk about like – being able to connect with folks on a, a much more non-superficial level to actually offer them things they really need. Like sometimes you're, you know, you're having a bad day and someone asks you, hey man, how you doing? And you give a static answer, not you being you, Cisco, but like just yeah, giving yeah, a static answer of, yeah, I'm good, you know. And like yeah, I'm good. Life's all right. You know? Right. And, living the dream. Right, living the dream. Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And it may not be all right and you might not be living the dream and it's okay to say that just like mm-hmm. it's okay to, and I think in some ways, you know, to be, so it would be ableist of you to ask a question mm-hmm. that is flat like that. How you doing? Because it would, it's, you're expecting that they're going to be okay. Um, yeah. It would be really countercultural of you actually for you to be like, Hey, what's, what's new in your life? What, what has got you kind of engaged in a way that you're not expecting recently? That's a different question. And it gives Mm -hmm. me space to explain like, well, this thing over here is injuring me, but this other thing is going really, really well. And I don't really know how to make sense of that internal dissonance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, like, I, I, I love that example. I love it because again, the performance of being normal. Exactly. I, I, you know, you mentioned the word countercultural. Um, you know, I, I could, 
probably say this tongue in cheek, you know, if you're watching Seinfeld, um, <laughs> or one of the many, many, many reruns of Seinfeld, which are hysterical. Um, you know, somebody goes up to Jordan and says, how are you doing? And he's like, do you care? Right, right, right. Exactly. Or when he says, Truly. we're living in a society. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, do you care? Right. Right. So there's this routine of normal, how we're supposed to person A says something to person B, by the way, there are great, um, I'm going to put on my academic hat, uh, Irving Goffman. Oh my um, gosh. You went to Goffman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Irving Goffman, um, linguist professor, longtime professor at the university of Pennsylvania used to write about this. So there is actual basis for what I'm saying. I don't want to, <laughs> right. Right. But like person A says something, then person B responds in a certain way. And mm-hmm. then they're like, there's a whole, whole dance to this. Right. Yep. Um, so, so yeah. Do you care? Right. 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 Which is, it is an unexpected way you know, the, the fact that George Costanza would even say something like that is an unexpected way to be received. It's the same way that, you know, some of us, I do this all the time just to either be ridiculous, tongue in cheeky, or, you know, to shake things up. So somebody will say good morning or, you know, I'll walk into a room. Uh, well, this is pre-COVID, but I'll walk into a room. You <laughs> I know, mean, you still walk into rooms, right, but, it's, but it's, there's now. nobody there except it's, you know. So I'll get onto a Zoom call. Let's do that. I'll get onto a Zoom call. And, you know, it's like nine o'clock in the morning and I'll be like, how's everybody doing tonight? And folks are like, huh? Like just to get you in a place where you realize like any other interaction with me if not intentionally stirred up, will get you in this preconceived, prepackaged way that you're going to exist in the world, which does not allow for you to acknowledge whatever humanity or whatever crisis that you may be going through or whatever exciting thing that you've experienced. Like we're never able mm-hmm. to see you. We're always seeing the facade of you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I can safely say not just the facade of you, but I know one of the, um, and I'm going to keep the nerd stuff out of it for this one. Um, but one of them, the, the deepest things that people really want is recognition yeah. to be seen for who they actually are. Yeah. So that's the part of me again, like, um, in my own work, it was sort of like, I put my academic hat on again, but you know, it, we I always called it like an internal negotiation with an external projection, right? The world right. is coming at me in a certain way. I've got all this stuff inside of me and I keep who I am to myself and mm-hmm. I have to perform mm-hmm. as I'm going about my day because there's all kinds of expectations that are associated with right. who we are, how we're supposed to respond that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, this is where we get into conversations of the structures of white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism, because these expectations, a lot of these things are rooted in the necessity, quote unquote, for you to create X product in a timely mm-hmm. fashion so that money can be made or decisions can be met or whatever. And mm-hmm. in doing that, you know, I, I understand the necessity of structures and productivity to a certain extent, but if it's going to kill the human being that's inside mm-hmm. that is doing that work, then we need to be having a conversation that allows us to alter 
what that reality looks like for whomever is engaging in it. And I think that this is where we get into, you know, kind of coming back and rooting into um, uh, uh, the guidebook. I think that one of these things that we are having to constantly be aware of with relation to students is like, how do we create an equitable playing field that allows for students of all abilities, of all skill sets, of all access points, of all creeds, races, nationalities, religions, whatever, to be able to be seen in their entirety and to be able to communicate what those needs are as they're trying mm. to be seen in their entirety. Mm. That's so well put. That's so well put. And I think that's, I think that's just the challenge for us all, really. Right. I mean, how, how we go about doing that, it's going to be very idiosyncratic. Um, but that's beautifully put. Well, I mean, once you've been a student who feels not, who feels missed, you know, I think, mm -hmm. what is it? They, I forget what the stat is uh, about the likelihood of success for a student that feels seen specifically in earlier grades. Um, and that mm -hmm. that carries over for marginalized students in college. Like mm -hmm. there are, there are, countless numbers of students that don't make it that drop out for any number of reasons. I was almost one of them. Um, yeah. And so what does it take to acknowledge where a student is and some of, some of the abilities that we're talking about and some of the disabilities that we're talking about, some of them are, are, you know, temporal, like some of them are constantly shifting. Some mm -hmm. of them aren't rooted in a, in a way that makes sense to an outsider, but it makes sense to the student. And so, or maybe it doesn't. That's the other thing. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't. If, if I've experienced a trauma, so I can give a story. So I went to Carolina. Um, I graduated in 2011 and I was there from 2007 to 2011. I was there during the time that Eve Carson uh, was murdered. Um, and Eve was a friend of mine. And so losing Eve was devastating. And there was a period of time that my, I was not mentally in a stable space. Mm. Um, same when, so my, you know, not to make this like super sorrowful all of a sudden. So like my, you know, my uh, first year in college, I lost a really good friend of mine. And in my last year in college, I lost my dad. And so mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of discussion about the pliability of memory for me surrounding mm -hmm. that period of time um, and, and what I was capable of actually producing because the mm -hmm. stressors that I was under internally and, and mind you, I was taking 19 hours my first semester of, of my senior year of college and 21 hours my second year or second so, semester. So how, so how many classes does that translate to just for, for folks who are unfamiliar with what 19 hours or 20 hours means? So most classes are three credit hours. So I was taking, and I was taking a couple like elective things in there. So uh, I was taking like basically six and a half classes, give or take uh, my first semester of um, senior year. And then I was taking seven and some change classes my second semester of mm -hmm. senior year, which is unheard of. I took 11 plus classes in a year. Um, and, yeah. and they say that for every like one class hour, you're supposed to put in about three ish hours of studying outside of class. 
That's like the general average. So I, and I was trying to navigate all of my internal stuff simultaneously. Um, I had some really good professors who did a lot to make sure that my general care was, was foregrounded before the expectations of what my work was. They expected me to finish my work. They expected me to, to be, uh, uh, you know, um, in keeping with where my peers were, but they also expected me to take care of myself. And there was never yeah. an expectation that my care would suffer at the success of my classwork. That was never. Um, yeah. And like that kind of management allowed for me to thrive as a student my senior year because I was in a deep precarity. Like I and and even now I still struggle to talk about some of that stuff because it was such a tailspin of, you know, of, of a period of time. You've just lost somebody who is literally one of the two pillars that moves you through the world. Uh, and that's for home for families that come from two parent homes. Like I, I lost somebody who I, I hadn't had an opportunity to spend a ton of time with. My dad was a truck driver. And so I was just now moving into that space where I was mentally able to understand the burden of being a provider or one of the co-providers mm -hmm. in a home um, and being able to work through things that I was frustrated about with him. Like I was just now reaching that space where I was able to start to ask questions of merit and a value that really have like reverberating uh, responses in like the ethos of your life. Um, mm -hmm. cause a lot of folks don't get the luxury to become friends with their parents. Yeah. And specifically black and brown kids. And like, I, my dad was a stat, my dad died at 47. Mm. And so I, I'm, you know, going through carrying that. That's a, that's a secret wound that you would have to have known me. Yeah. You would have had to have known me. And I was trying as hard as I could to be the like picture perfect kid. I had run for student body president two, two years prior. Um, so a lot of folks knew who I was on campus. I had a very big pub bubbly personality. I was always at sporting events. I felt like there was an expectation for me to be and maintain who this character was while I was wrecked internally. Mm. And so this is where I tell like communicating Giving giving students the ability to communicate in a way that was meaningful. I, I talk about, you know, when folks ask me really meaningful professors that I've had in my life, there was a woman, her name was uh, Dr. Allie Colling and Neff. Um, and she she was one of the first people to really tell me my writing was valuable. And that mm. happened my senior year. Yeah. And like just that little morsel. She like coached me through a few things and like helped me work some stuff out. But that little morsel allowed me to feel seen in a space where I needed some wins. I needed some W's in a big mm -hmm. way to not yeah. completely like spin out. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, the, she started to remove some of those obstacles that we talked about. She, she, she knew like, okay, Michael, I know that your paper might be late. How do we make it? She, she what she did was like, one of the things she did, I remember we had this huge project that was due at the end of our class. It was a research paper, effectively. Um, yeah. And she, I told her, like, hey, you know, this semester is really hard. And I kind of told her. And she's like, what are things that we can do 
that might be helpful. And I was like, I don't really know. She goes, would it be okay if I, I ask you to turn in smaller versions, smaller portions of your paper along the way? And she's like, none of your classmates are going to do that. But I think that it might help kind of ease some of the internal tension. So if you're really struggling, we can talk about this three pages. So by the time you turn in your mm. 15, you've already turned in three five-page papers. Or excuse me, five three-page yeah, five three-page papers. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And and you'll be set up. You'll be ready. You'll be prepared. And that's exactly what happened. And she was able – by the time I turned in my final, my work had been reviewed by her multiple times. She knew exactly what I was trying to mm-hmm. talk about. Uh, and she knew where I wanted to land and where I was trying to go. And so she was actually helping craft my argument way early. And, I mean, that's a, that's, mm-hmm. that's a whole lot of work on her end. But I mean, she has, she has, I, she is one of those people that I, I, to this day, owe so much to. And I'm just mm-hmm. so grateful that she took that time with me. Mm, that's a really powerful story, Michael. Um, you know, that's very, very powerful. And, you know, I, I know we, we've talked a lot in the past about how we don't necessarily know how our actions and efforts um, influence those and how, when our story becomes someone else's story, what yeah. then becomes of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that's why the, one of the example, the example you shared, I mean, um, we remember those and what people do for us mm. even after they're gone. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the part of me again, where, I'm so thankful in hearing your story and very thankful that you had someone Mm. who took the time, the energy, and literally, maybe without saying, but through their actions, they're saying, I see you. Oh, yeah. I see you like, like, yeah, yeah. Th- those are nice shoes. Nice. It doesn't matter. Right. I see right. you. Right. Cuts through all of that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, she was one of the classes that I looked like, and it was early. I, I, as a senior, you should never have 8 AMs. You should have like inherited <laughs> the right to never have an 8 AM class. You shouldn't have class that starts before 11. And I had an eight mm. and then a nine 30. And she was my 9.30. And I went to my 8 o'clock because I didn't want to miss my 9.30. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we remember those people. Mine was um, Mrs. Clark in third grade. Had, um, you know, my first uh, black professor was a sociologist at the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. So I was an undergrad. Yeah. First Latina slash Latino professor. Um, uh, her first name is Rosa. I cannot remember Rosa's last name to save my life. Um, but it was in the sociology program over there. Um, I took a social course or two. Mm. And there's something really, really powerful when somebody says, I see yeah. you. Because it, it just, everything we talked about, about, you know, what is normal, the projection of expectation, right. really? Right. Um, it just doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's great. Okay, um, I see you. 
this is what we're going to work on. This is what we're going to talk about. This is what we're going to do. Um, that sticks with yeah. you. And, you know, that, that's the part of me. I, I, I truly, and I think for folks who, who know me quite well, um, um, whenever I walk around in the world, I'm a big fan of, of walking quietly because you don't know what people are carrying with right. them or what's going on internally. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, and, and, and it's, and it's a great conversation we're having and, you know, and I, I know that, you know, we can talk about, sure, there's certain things you can do in a classroom. I think this is one of those conversations um, that not only needs to be highlighted, but needs to be put front and center. Um, because quite frankly, it's not what we know or what gets diagnosed, but it's what's invisible, what we don't know about, or what is undiagnosed. Right. Um, there's a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people. And I want to say that there was, um, um, I am blanking on a name. Hold on. Give me a second. I got to, I got to look up a name. Uh, Dr. Court Schneider at, um, at Duke. He is new. He started in the summer, I believe a summer of 2020. And I'm going to totally mess up this statistic. So pretend like it's ballparkish, right? <laughs> um, but you know, he, he's saying like, I was talking to him last semester and the amount of folks who are undiagnosed with something far is a, a multiple factors higher than what we know about. Right. Um, and, and again, it's, it's just, it's one of those words and phrases that just kind of sits in the air because then you're sort of like, you know, like, like a lot of really gritty and hard to digest, um, statistics, right. you know, somebody, you know, somebody that quietly is going through something and in making this conversation, um, I am trying to avoid uh, the the word normal, but making it more public, making it more visible, um, I think does something and helps someone in the sense that, you know, we can move past a lot of these expectations that are projected upon us, how we interact how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Okay. That's great to hear. Okay. Bye. Um, to, um, so much of how we structure environments, whether it's in the classroom, it's on campus, it's in our communities to even thinking about, and, and I, and I really do mean, you know, there's this big, and I can elaborate more on this. And I am, you know, the, these tensions we feel between, uh, um, equality and equity and sort of how does this play out in everyday life? And, and I, and I did write down in the guidebook where, um, you know, um, and, and I, and I will say, I learned so much from my students. I learned more from my students than I probably teach them. I really do mean that in, in, um, in this section, but in a different year, um, we were talking about, you know, what is equity? What is equality? And 
Um, and I can't remember who said it. I just remember what was said. And it was just, again, it's just something that kind of is out there. And you're just like, wow, can you say that again, but slower so I can write it down? <laughs> and I'm glad I somebody and somebody did. I think I don't know if it was me or someone else, but somebody asked this individual and I wrote it down. Um, so in my own con, I'm, I'm reading verbatim. So bear with me. In my own context, for example, during a classroom discussion, a student provided the following to help illustrate the difference between equity and equality. Quote, if I have a student who is in a wheelchair, equality means that I would let everyone leave the classroom once the bell rings. Since all students are leaving at the same time, I am treating everyone equally. Equity means that I would let the same student leave early so that they can arrive to their next class on time. Since I am accounting for both the process and the outcome, I am treating students equitably. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's the part of me again where, um, you know, we, we, we started this conversation uh, and I think we framed it very, very well in terms of, you know, recalling intersectionality, recalling so many things that you and I have discussed um, both on this podcast as well as in real life and highlighting something that is often invisible, even something that, you know, ableist structures. When was the last time? in public discourse, those two words were back to back. Um, I can't think of one. I really can't. Um, so again, I, I, I feel like for what we're talking about today is, um, making the invisible visible. Um, we can highlight, certainly highlight some best practices. There's no question, but I, I feel like I had to say that because again, certain things just need to be said. We've talked a lot about a lot of different things, you know, with relation to how to set up a room or, or at least to, yeah. to see students, to see your students as a hundred percent human. But like, how do I have that show up mm. in my classroom structurally? Because when we, when we talk about structural systems, it's one thing to like yeah. talk about all these things that feel good. It's another thing to translate the feel good into action items. So what do those action mm-hmm. items look like? Yeah, so so there are six. I want to highlight them. Now, keep in mind, what I'm going to share and say is a small fraction of what is in the guidebook. Okay, I just want to make that point clear before I before I start. But the first one, again, seems really straightforward, but just communicate with your students early and often um, so that you get a better understanding mm-hmm. of what they need to mm-hmm. be successful. Like, like truly, how can I help you? Right. So I, I know, um, in an earlier, earlier podcast, uh, episode, as well as, um, you know, one of the resources I talked about was a very simple piece of paper that I hand out basically saying, you know, Hey, what is your preferred name, preferred gender pronoun? Um, one of the very simple questions that I ask, and again, it's the smallest things that can make the biggest difference is what do you need from me to be successful? Okay. It's not Mm -hmm. if, it's not how, but what. We all need something. Is it really, you know, and I think the example I used way earlier, this is one of the ways, Michael, I have a really shockingly good memory about (laughs) random things. And this is sort of what people tell me. 
Um, you know, but sometimes it is, mm. hey, I'm not a morning person. Um, so can you provide supplemental material so that if I am taking notes, I know that I am in, you know, right. that I'm in the process of waking up, right? Something simple, right? Early and often, what do you need to be successful? The second one, I think this is the most common, um, com a common practice testing accommodations, right. right? Um, letting students know like, Hey, and, and I think, I don't want to elaborate on this, but I think this story you shared earlier was beautiful. And I think, um, perfectly captures if, if there's something going on, if you experience some kind of stress or anxiety, and if there are very practical things that I can do as your teacher, um, to alleviate that, whether it's turning in assignments, um, sprinkled out throughout the term or throughout the year, as opposed to having one final assignment or breaking up um, um, a final exam that counts for everything into a series of smaller assignments or smaller quizzes. Um, a very simple, and again, a reasonable right. request. Um, another one is, and I, and I will say, um, again, it sounds straightforward, but just making sure that all the materials that are in the classroom are, are easily accessible. Sometimes accessibility here can mean, and I think this has taken added importance given the pandemic, um, what is our relationship yeah. to technology mm -hmm. in the classroom, right? You know, it's, it's thinking about, um, do students have the ability to use technology? And if not, okay, what are some very practical things uh, that I can do to help facilitate what learning uh, can look like given our current constraints? So again, there's, there's one um, resource I really wanted just to highlight right now. So in case if you're, um, if you, if, if you're listening to us now, but, um, you know, don't have the guidebook. The specific resource is called Accessible Teaching in the Time of COVID-19. It's publicly available. So if you type it into any search engine, you'll find it. But that's a really, really great resource. Um, a fourth practice, uh, and, I, and I think this is, um, again, straightforward, but just communicate and share how you are evaluating students' work, right? So if you have a rubric or you have some kind of practical example that explains and shows students um, how mm. they're being evaluated, right? Whether it's, you know, if, if there are multiple low stakes opportunities, such as a practice quiz, um, but just giving students a sense, a very real concrete sense of, um, of, um, of how they're going to, of, of, I'm right. trying not to use right, the word right, judged. Right, right. Sorry, because because and and I say and and I and, and I say that because oftentimes yes. grades and judgment go hand in hand. So this is this is a thing where I, I'm trying to be open with you as much as possible about what grades, um, how grades are assigned in this environment, and I'm trying to do it in such a way where I don't want to conflate it with judgment. And certainly on the right. students end, I don't want shame to enter the picture. I'm dumb, I'm stupid, et cetera. It's very easy and it's, it is hard to unlearn and to undo that damage once 
exactly. a student begins to believe that story. Yes. It is really, 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 really hard. Um, and so again, as, as we've spoken about on the, on the episodes around grades, thinking about is my approach really formative, meaning um, things that we do along the way in terms of understanding what students get out of the experience, or is it summative, meaning um, is it really um, a final quiz, a final paper, a final exam? And that's um, the benchmark against which a grade is given. Um, there is a great resource. Um, it is called a rubric for rubrics. Um, something I adapted from a lot of really good research that came out of the field of education, but a, a way of just very simply looking at your own um, criteria for evaluation and saying, really, is there um, a way this can be right. improved, a way this can be a bit more equitable, a way that I can be... Um, a bit more um, inclusive and excellent at the same time. The fifth uh, best practice is just being able to present materials in multiple ways. Um, you know, again, it sounds really straightforward. Um, now, now keep in mind, I, I'm not saying, you know, this isn't learning preferences. Because it's critically important to note that while we all have preferences in terms of how we learn, I'm going to say this very slowly, we all have preferences in terms of how we learn, but there is no scholarly basis for learning styles. Right. That is the idea that students learn best when course content is pitched to match students' self-reported media preferences. Right. So there's no basis. There's actually no people have researched it. Um, there's some great work um, out of the Porvoo Center for, for Teaching and Learning at Yale University. No basis for it. Um, and finally, is really just learning more about what your institution offers. Um, now, something that I talk a lot about in my class, and I didn't want to spend a lot of time today talking about this because I really don't want to give a history lesson here. I just wanted today to to be a really dynamic um, conversation, really between friends. Hmm. Um, I, I mean that. You really are um, um, a friend of mine. Um, I know. <laughs> I know, whatever. You <laughs> no, know. I'm just saying. Like, I do legitimately know that. I that was not that was not a. Yeah. Uh, sorry for the the nerd moment, but not that was not a Luke and Leia. Yeah, like, I love you. I know <laughs> that's not what that was supposed to be. That was a, no, 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 no. I'll do it. I thought I, I I was hoping you wouldn't say hashtag blessed or something like that. I'd be, like, I'd be like, we'll see you next week. Bye. You know, um, you're like, I take that comment, back. but. <laughs> You know, um, you know, but it, it becomes this thing, you know, learning more about what your institution offers, because every single, I do mean every single accredited institution of learning in the United States, by federal law has to offer resources exactly. by federal law, mm -hmm. 1990, the American Disabilities Act, which is traced back to, to 1965. Mm -hmm. Within the United States, federal law has to offer resources on how to make learning environments more accessible. And I'll, and I'll be frank, mm. since we as educators may not be the most qualified 
to provide certain forms of assistance. You know, we have these tensions about things we can control, things that we can't, ways we can offer help, ways that we can't. It is best to proactively consult and work with trained experts and professionals in your school. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the six. That's it. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of additional resources and readings and I'm not exaggerating. There's a, there's a lot of stuff in the guidebook. Um, and I'll just, I'll give a quick shout out in case people are like, well, I want to look them up, Cisco. And I'm like, you totally can. Um, there's a national black disability coalition. They have a great resource called developing and Re reflecting on black disability studies pedagogy. There's also the association of higher education and disability. There's a great, um, a uh, document called Supporting Accommodation Requests, Guidance on Documentation Practices. Uh, Grinnell College, uh, they have a document called Best Practices for Classroom Accommodation, as well as um, for, for those uh, educators, teachers, instructors, professors within higher education, the City University of New York. Cutie. What is going on? They have... CUNY, I'm serious. They do amazing things um, um, in New York City. But it is oh, a yeah. it the, this guide. It's free. It is a faculty guide to teaching students with disabilities. Um, it's completely free. You can find it. It's publicly available. And last but not least, um, there is a resource. Uh, it's called Black, Disabled, and Proud college students with disabilities. The entire premise of this show has always been, if you center the margins, everyone benefits. So exactly. please check out these resources. They're publicly available um, and they're at your fingertips. Thank you so much, Cisco. As always, I mean, today was a very engaging, enlightening, uh, and just all around meaningful discussion. Um, as Cisco pointed out, if you'd like to find out more, please, 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 and you'll hear this in our tag out because this is something we really want to focus you on, please go get the guidebook. It's available for $4.99 on Apple Books. Get the guidebook. Check it out. The resources are there. Cisco has taken so much time to put everything in one place just to make it a little bit easier for you. Um, so, yeah, anything you want to leave our friends with, Cisco? Um. I so appreciate today's conversation. Um, I'm glad that we can be honest. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I really do. I, I do hope um, this helps someone and um, mm. being able to say, I see you and I love you. We'll see you next week. Oh, I was going to say, don't worry about it, man. I have been loud wrong on this show. Um, <laughs> so, so, so literally, the example, I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad nobody is like, really, really, um, was uh, uh, oh, no, exactly. yep. the, the yep. answer is yes, dude. <laughs> it's, sort of, it's like with Ghostbusters, right? If somebody asks you if you're a demigod, <laughs> say yes, yes, you know? <laughs> right. That's what that was. That was my moment. Let me get my foot out of my mouth. So don't worry. Thank you for tuning in to Centering the Margins. If you liked what you heard, you can rate, review, and subscribe to Centering the Margins on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. 
be sure to check back next Tuesday for the new episode. In addition, be sure to go pick up Cisco's new easy read, How to Teach Contentious Issues, a practical guidebook for educators on Apple Books. Hey, Cisco, tell us a little bit more about that 30%. Absolutely. 30% of all proceeds will be donated to Durham Children's Initiative. Durham Children's Initiative's mission is to create a pipeline of high-quality services spanning from birth through college and career for children and families living in Durham, North Carolina. There are more than 65 partner organizations and thousands of community members who actively contribute to the initiative. It takes a village, and we at Centering the Margins want to make sure that the village is still here post-COVID. Please go find and buy the guidebook on Apple Books. Your money's going to a great cause. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Now, does she put sugar in her grits? <laughs> that, that feels like a deal break. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 sort of like somebody ordered like how like you shit it though. <laughs> Completely right. Like. <laughs> you this what does it feel like to be 96 and a legend miss legend i'm amazed every single day i live do you feel like you have more to do yes that's why i'm still here i mean what my life became is not what i expected i had no idea that i would touch anybody when the time comes what do you want us to remember about you I've done my best. That's all.